So Isaiah 62, we're in 63, but 62 had said that for Zion's sake, he was not going to keep silent uh, through the process. And then he talked about how he was going to give them and us a new name. And we examined how that, you know, it does pertain a lot to salvation in that we're a changed person. We're born again. We're not what we were previous. And he went on to say that he would rejoice over us and ended the chapter by talking about raising a banner for the nations so that the nations would gather to him. They'd be able to see that insignia and and move towards the Lord. It's, it's symbolic and literal. Uh, we see elsewhere in the scripture that the Lord tells us that the banner he raises over us is love. You know, you might have the at least emotional state, like maybe God's banner that hangs over me is judgment or disappointment or anger. And what it is is love. Because, you know, if he's going to make a presentation and say this one is mine, his banner over his, his love, his banner to attract the nations is the same. His banner is love. So when you come to chapter 63, the Lord then talks about uh, his function in judgment and salvation. There are some specifics that he's referring to, but also there's the large generalization. I mean, he's, he's establishing the greater overview of doctrine and what his character is and what his personality is. So judgment you see that harshness and at the same time the softness, the love, the care, and the tenderness of salvation. So 63.1, the prophet asks, who is this who comes from Edom? Remember the perennial enemies to the south, the Edomites that they've dealt with. And, and now this one that he's describing, which we'll see is Jesus as God coming up out of Edom. Who is this who comes from? From Edom, with dyed garments from Basra, this one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in greatness of his strength, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Those last couple of statements are actually part of our understanding that this is Jesus, you know, I who speak in righteousness. Only he can say that. I who am mighty to save. Only he can say that. Only God can say that. So we're going to see uh, that uh, Basra, interestingly enough, is uh, the capital of Edom. And that Basra actually means the gathering of grapes. Uh, throughout the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is repeatedly making this picture of how they would tread out the grapes and he would relate that to the pouring out of blood in judgment. So we've by now already gotten that very clear picture and here he does it again and then he goes through the remainder really driving the point home that this symbol uh, shouldn't be mistaken for any other thing. The treading out of grapes, when we see that, it's sort of like he's he's giving us a prophetic definition. That when we see grapes being tread out, uh, it is a statement of judgment. It is a statement of blood, actually a statement of bloodshed and the pouring out of blood. So it's as severe a statement as we can possibly imagine in regard to this judgment. Now, He's coming to Israel, he's coming to Jerusalem, but he's coming out of Edom. And historically, we don't see Christ coming out of Edom in this way. Uh, more what he's saying is that locally here at this moment in history, as Israel, particularly now, 
I should be clear. It's it's Jerusalem and and Judah we're talking about in the south, the two remaining nations that Isaiah has mentioned. They're incredibly weak at this point, politically, spiritually, emotionally. They are a weak people and a weak nation, and Edom takes advantage of that. They come over, they attack, they pillage, they're doing horrible things, and so the Lord does bring judgment on them, does send invading nations to wreak havoc on them as punishment. And what God is saying to the nation of Judah that's very weak right now and sort of getting beat up by the bully Edom is, you don't have to worry about Edom. Next time you see me, I'm going to be coming out of Edom. And and I mean, I'll, I'll just phrase it this way. I'm going to be covered in blood. I'm, I'm going to deal with these people who have been your perennial enemies and in this current circumstance have dealt so harshly with you. I, I think that we should take comfort in that. You know, we, we get this impression sometimes, you know, oh, turn the other cheek, love your enemy. Right. Absolutely. No argument there whatsoever. We absolutely should have the heart of God ready to love our enemies. But at the same time, there's sort of that, attitude sometimes like how long am i going to get beat up like how long are people going to take advantage of me how long am i going to have to adore and what god is saying to this nation is two part one he's saying to judah you've been in sin so i have to deal with you but make no mistake i'm going to deal with edom also i'm not just going to let people throttle you without keeping them in check so this is an assurance a promise and an assurance to them and then Two, he even gives that image. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads the wine press? You, you know, you're splattered with uh, this red. You know, there are deep concentrations of it around your feet and probably up to your waistline or at least knees, and, and it's splattered all over you. And the answer comes. In verse 3, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. And there you have that definition seemingly given by the Lord through the prophet that the grapes... And the wine press are symbolic of the blood that's going to be shed. He, he gives that statement here. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garment. Who? Edom. I just came out of Edom. I just came from Basra. Why are my garments stained? Because their blood is all over me. I've affected judgment on them. I haven't allowed them. And I'm here. This statement, you know... From the peoples, no one was with me. I've trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. No one could join me in this. It isn't a matter of looking at it and saying, was no one willing? I mean, why did God have to handle this circumstance himself? Were there no people to be involved? And it really goes back to what we see here and elsewhere in the book of Revelation, for instance, as we see uh, the scroll that needs to be opened, and I assume, uh, based on what I've read from other scholars, that that is the title deed to the earth, and it needs to be opened in order to redeem the earth and claim its occupants for God. And they search heaven and earth and under the earth, and no one is found worthy to open the scrolls and break its seals. And John just weeps because we're going to be left in this condition. We're not going to be redeemed. We're, we're going to be a wasted and a lost people unless someone can break those seals and open the scroll and read the contents and claim rightful ownership of God's people. And so John is heartbroken. Here, similarly, no one can tread the wine press with me. Why? It would be hypocritical. How could I judge you? It's just, I'm as flawed as the next person. How could anyone judge someone else? I mean, I can declare to you, you can declare to me, hey, what you're doing is wrong. 
And we see right here written in the scripture that what you're doing is sin, but then to carry out the judgment, the actual wrath of God, that really does need to be God. It needs to come per her orders. So when he says, no one was with me, it's more the idea of, I'm the only one worthy to carry out this task. To literally wipe out a nation, pronounce judgment upon them, and just brush aside anyone who wants to accuse me of somehow having done wrong. I'm the only one that's capable of that. You know, the things that we learn later, you know, we, we think we know how a circumstance is. And then as we get to where we know what was going on, you know, I've read articles about the initial torpedo attack that occurred on United States military ships uh, being fired upon from the Vietnamese, which launched the Vietnam War. And now we know that didn't happen. The war started, but the supposed torpedo attack was not real. There was a launch. It wasn't at our ships. Miscommunication, retaliation against them for having, I mean, it probably would have exploded this way. But our troops just being in close proximity to theirs, conflict's going to arise. And so what are we left with? A giant mess <laughs> that we're going to be sorting the details out for a very long time. How did these things transpire? Anybody remember the Rodney King incident, right? The subsequent trials and then the riots that took place. Have you guys ever looked at what actually went on when those cops beat Rodney King silly? Okay. This is a huge man. I, 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 you can fact check me. Um, I, I'm, I'm just drawing this from you know, sketchy memory, but, um, I think he was six, eight. He weighs like 285 pounds. He's a massive black man who is incredibly violent. He's had altercations with police officers previous to that moment and hospitalized them three of them at a time on one occasion. He's hopped up on PCP when they pull him over. While they're beating him with nightsticks, he's attached to two tasers. They've launched the wires at him, and they're literally holding the trigger and juicing that guy. And he's getting up off the ground and still coming after them. So they beat him silly. <laughs> I mean, were they wrong? Probably. They were scared for their lives. Right? This, this man has wrecked law enforcement officers in the past. And right now they know he's wound up on hardcore drugs and they're throwing everything they can at him to just get him in handcuffs and get him in the cruiser. And two 50,000 volt uh, tasers are, are winding into his body and he's still getting up off the ground and coming after him. I bet if you had a big stick and you were there, you'd probably be pounding the man to the ground too. I'm not trying to justify any of that. I'm just saying we see the videos of a group of police officers gathered around a black man uh, who's trying to get up off the ground and they're just beating him senseless. If you don't know the whole narrative, right? You come into this situation and God carries out his act of punishment. It doesn't matter who doesn't know. Oh, poor Edom. They've always been picked on. And, you know, that Israel, they've been bullies. And, you know, that's the sort of thing we're hearing now, right? You know, Israel, the occupiers. Oh, the poor Palestinians. God is justified in his judgments. Now, I can't even explain that. I'm not trying to sit around, but, you know, you, I've heard people describe you know, like God's punishment of Edom and other nations as genocide. God's wiping out a nation. <laughs> Just, God brought them into existence. If he wants to take them out of existence, that's his prerogative, not mine. Right? From a human perspective, no human can join God. Do you understand what I'm trying to get across here? No human can join God in his judgment. 
When God carries it out, you hear those in heaven, right, saying, true, right, and just are your judgments. Why? Well, because you're God. Not because you're all-powerful and no one can say anything against you. Because your judgments are truly right. Our opinions of the circumstance, we don't know all of the details. God is the one who knows all of the details. And when he affects his judgment, we need to just stand back and say, and that's the way it's supposed to be. When it happens to Judah, when it happens to Israel, when it happens to Edom, when it happens to America. God is justified in his actions. People are the ones who are incorrect. For the day of vengeance is in my heart. The year of my Redeemer has come. Remember how the previous two chapters ago, Jesus is talking about, well, I I mean, the prophet is speaking, but then Jesus reads from uh, chapter 61 and says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. What? The year of the Lord. But he stops right where he says, the year of my vengeance. When Jesus reads and quotes and says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing, he stops just short of saying, the year of my vengeance. Why? Because that's not until later. 70 AD, they experience God's punishment, right? And ultimately, we're talking about his final judgment. When, when he calls all of the nations of history in front of him, and he divides the sheep from the goats and sends people into their eternal punishment and their eternal reward. God is justified in those things. The day of his vengeance you know, is in my heart. The year of my Redeemer has come. I looked and there was no one to help. I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me. My fury, it sustained me. Now, <clears throat> I wanted to point something out. We live in this world and in this culture that has this attitude about tolerance. You know, we're hearing all these things about having a safe space on college campuses and all this garbage. And honestly, harshness serves a very effective person purpose sometimes sometimes i shouldn't you know i'm not trying to imply that we should always look to be edgy and aggressive but here think about this this is the character and the nature of god being shown to us in this explanation here you know i my own arm brought salvation for me and my own fury It sustained me. There are things to be angry about. There are things to correct. There are things. You know, if the salt loses its saltiness, what good is it for? If we can't speak up, stop the decay, the corruption, if we can't voice our opinion, if we can't correct people when they're wrong, our culture's lost. Lost. I would encourage you to, you know, find extremely polite and inviting ways to say these things, right? Because uh, we're told uh, that it is through his love and through his kindness that we came to repentance. So we want to extend that graciousness, but at the same time, looking somebody right in the face and saying, no, that's wrong. It's, uh, it's an unfortunate thing that we're falling so far away from the truth that we can't even declare what's right and wrong in our culture anymore. It's against the law. You can't speak out. It's a hate crime. They're they're actively in pursuit of charges now to change our freedom of speech. No joke. Uh, You say these things for years, and then when they finally happen, everybody freaks out and says, well, you know, how? It's been coming for a long time. It's it's not a crime when when we say it's wrong, it's sin, uh, that shouldn't be that way, whatever subject we're talking about. It's not a crime. Attacking someone over our you know hatred or something like that, that certainly needs to be punished. Here, the Lord is saying <clears throat> no one was there 
to join me, to uphold this position. So when my fury lashed out in this way, it sustained me. There was something about God's character that was deeply satisfied when he had to perform this judgment. It's a necessary thing. I've trodden down the peoples in my anger. So now he gets even very graphically descriptive about what he's talking about. You know, yeah, grapes, right, wrath, sure, wine press, people. I crushed people. That's what I did. Yeah, he, he doesn't just leave it in the symbolic. He comes right down to the gore of the situation. You know, I, I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, like the wine. You know, if you're crushing out the grapes, you would have the wine that was produced here. You know, crush. I made them drunk in my fury, brought them down, brought down their strength to the earth. Whatever, whatever great shape and form they had, it was pulverized under God's judgment. And that's definitely, you know, the way it's going to be once we see him affect his final judgments upon the entire earth. Uh, carry out uh, the, you know, aren't it? When you see certain things that are going on in the world around us, you guys, doesn't it just make you so angry that you long for God to bring his correction, his punishment? I certainly don't want to see people hurt. I'm not implying that. But the junk has just got to stop. Uh, You're hearing certain politicians, literally some of the most evil people in our country, killing unborn children, joyous about it, promoting the laws, and then saying that they're doing the work of the Lord. just boils my, I just can't even stand to listen to some of that. Not my job to bring about God's judgment, but it is coming for them. And when it comes, I'll stand there and say, righteous and true and just are your judgments. Innocent children not being cared for, being put to death inside the womb because of the politicians and their wanting to present, you know, freedom of choice. I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord. It's interesting. Right in the middle of this, you know, blood-soaked vengeance is the loving kindness of God. That seems out of place. No, it's not. This is the balance of God. This is literally, literally what he's saying is, oh, you think me violent? You think me judgmental? You think that I'm a crusher of human beings? Let's take a minute and talk about my loving kindness, is what he's saying, right in the the midst of this. I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. He, he is abounding in love. He, you know, the, the multitude of his loving kindnesses, his great goodness toward who? The house of Israel, which guess what? We're included in that. Believers is what he's talking about. Children of God. Anyone can be that, right? All of the nation of Edom could have been that. They literally could have repented of their sins, turned their heart to him, and surrendered themselves to God. And instead, hate-filled vengeance and revenge upon Israel is what they were carrying out until God has to punish them for it. God's loving kindness It's a thing that is so misunderstood. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his piety, or his pity rather, he redeemed them. He bore them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. So 
for those in this moment and even today who can look at their life and maybe even say, I believe because of my circumstances that God is my enemy. If that's where you're at, if that's where any person is, understand that God just said, these are my children. These are the ones that I have great love for. These are the ones that I will pour out loving kindnesses upon. But through their rebellion, they've become my enemy. So if we're in the place where we're perhaps saying, why, how, you know, God is always, you know, I find myself an enemy of God. Okay, stop being an enemy of God. Change your heart, turn around. We, we know the answer, right? John the Baptist. You know, repent. Make straight the way for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn around and you're thinking, change your behavior and cooperate with him. So many people that you know have this attitude like God has done them wrong. When you look at their life, they have very often blatantly lived a life that was in rebellion to God. And so now everything that they've produced in their life through their sinfulness and their misbehaviors, they're now blaming God for reaping the fruit of their own behavior. This is God's fault. These terrible things that are happening to me now, that's God doing that to me. Amazing how many times I've heard that. I'm sure you've heard it in similar ways, similar times. Verse 11, then he remembered the days of old. Moses and his people saying, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them, who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble? This uh, statement that's being put forward is uh, an idea of uh, we need this again. So, you know, Moses and the leadership and the direction and, you know, literally, the, you know, traveling from one physical location. To, we need all of this to happen again, is what the nation of Judah is saying. Israel's fallen into sin. They've been taken captive. They're already in captivity. Our captivity lies just ahead of us. We know the collapse is coming you know, we're adrift spiritually. No one's following the Lord. Sin. What we need is a guy like Moses to show up and just sort of grab the bull by the horns and lead us out of where we are right now. That's exactly what Jesus was. He, he is described by Moses in the Old Testament as one who would come in the likeness of Moses. And Jesus shows up on the scene and he's not even saying, I'm the guy like Moses, everybody come follow me, right? He's just showing up and it isn't even so much the miracles at first, he's preaching. And they're blown away, right? He starts out with the Sermon on the Mount and that whole sermon is you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it taught by your religious leaders that this is the truth. And in fact, this is the truth. He does that all the way through, you know, basically three chapters, five, six, and seven of Matthew, Sermon on the Mount. And when he ends, it says the people were astonished because he taught as one having authority, not as the scribes. They, they essentially were saying and teaching all the time, I don't know. This is the most common opinion of this side of the aisle, and this is the other opinion that's most common on the other side of the aisle, and I sort of think it's something like this, but who really knows? That was their attitude. I mean, is that not a lot of Christianity today? Everybody just wringing their hands, unsure, you know, scared to say right or wrong. I mean, you know, Joel Osteen there on, isn't that Larry King live when, 
you know, Larry, I, if you sit down in that seat as a Christian, there's a few questions you know Larry King is going to ask you. Yeah. Marriage between one man and one woman, that's going to be one of the questions. The existence of hell is almost certainly going to be one of the questions Larry King asks of any Christian. You know, guaranteed. Uh, Jesus alone is God. There's no other God other than Jesus. Jesus is the only source. You're going to get asked those questions. And Joel Osteen was a perfect example of that mealy mouth, undecided junk. Just not not sure if, you know, I wish I could imitate his voice, but just not sure, basically, if he can lend an opinion to any. The scripture is what we're talking about. I don't care what you think or what the social pressures say. What does the word of God say? And that's Jesus' approach. In your culture, everybody sort of thinks this. You've heard that, right? Yeah, okay. Well, this is the truth over here. They're blown away by that. You get to Matthew chapter 7, and they're just blown away because he speaks as one having authority. You know, here, we need a guy like Moses. We need somebody to show up with firm direction and lead the way. I got to tell you, uh, a lot of Christianity hates that. And, and don't get me wrong. I mean, like everywhere. We're so constantly steeped in the idea that everybody's opinion matters. It really doesn't. It really doesn't. You gotta have leadership like Moses. That's that's how it functions well, right? I mean if you're gonna refinance the house, do you sit down with your four, five, six, seven year old children and say, now look, the interest rate just dropped. I think it's time for us to go back and talk to the bank. So could you put your Legos down for a minute, you know, sort this out with me? You as parents don't need the opinion of your children. Within Christianity, we need leaders that will stand up and lead. And then the children all squabbling around about, this is my opinion, and this is my opinion, and this is my opinion. What is needed is godly leadership like unto Moses, that can take people from the mess we're in of not obeying God's word all the way through the changes necessary to being obedient to the word, you know, to the Lord collectively. What is needed? Need a guy like Moses come and shepherd. You know, as it says, where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them? If your mind like skipped rails and you were suddenly in the New Testament because it mentioned the Holy Spirit, right? Keep in mind, Holy Spirit's been working all through history. All the way back to Genesis, Adam and Eve, Holy Spirit is alive and well. All the way through eternity. And when Moses arrives on the scene, right, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the leadership and you'll remember that occasion where Joshua, we learn later, finds men that weren't gathered with Moses, but they've suddenly been filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're prophesying in the camp. And Joshua comes into Moses and is saying, you know, there's gods out there that, you know, are now prophesying that weren't in here with you being anointed. Should I go do something about that? You know, do I bring them in? Do I arrest them? Do I kill them? What do I do? And Moses says, oh, that's a beautiful thing. I'm paraphrasing, but he says, I wish that everywhere, everyone would be filled with the Holy Spirit. So this isn't an Acts chapter 2, you know, strictly New Testament sense of things. This is Old Testament, even now, Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus saying, you know what we really all need around here? It's the Holy Spirit. We need, a, we need a leader like Moses, and we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit like they were back then, who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm. Jesus is referred to as the right arm of God. His strength, his authority, his direction. As we said, dividing the waters, a reference to the Red Sea, and they're coming through. The everlasting name of God, and Jesus also, 
who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble. You know, a horse in the wilderness. You know, the, the blinding and uh, severity of the wilderness that would require the horse to be led so he wouldn't stumble. The people needed to be led through going through the Red Sea um, unscathed wasn't even their skill and prowess. God led them through. God, God made it that they weren't stumbling, that they accomplished that work. We need to give God the credit for carrying us through all of these things. That, that old statement we've talked about in a number of times. You know, I, when I found God, when I found God, I wasn't looking for God. I, I would have to say, maybe it's different for you, but I would have to say God found me. God led me. God brought me. As far as, you know, the, the lack of stumbling, that was definitely the Lord's work. These people have departed from the Lord. That's why the judgment is coming on them. As a beast goes down into the valley and the Spirit of the Lord causes him to rest, so you led your people to make yourself a glorious name. God working and bringing them through. Look down from heaven. Now we hear this prayer of penitence. And see from your own or your habitation, holy and glorious, where are your zeal and your strength, the yearning of your heart and your mercies, Toward me? Are they restrained? Doubtless you are our father. Though Abraham was ignorant of us, and Israel does not acknowledge us, so uh, Abraham hoped in God for the promised nation that was to come, but he didn't see it. So, so he was ignorant while on earth. He was ignorant of all that God was going to do. Even at this point in Isaiah's ministry, you know, Abraham didn't know that this was going to become the great nation that it is at this point. And, you know, within that, so so Abraham being ignorant uh, and Israel does not acknowledge us, the, the ten northern tribes, right, had rejected David and his family and the southern two tribes, which became known as Judas, so their very own brethren have forsaken them, broken away, and have nothing to do with them. You know, you got Abraham who had no idea, but you know, Israel, which is rejecting us, essentially not not acknowledging us. You, O oh Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from everlasting is your name. O oh Lord, why have you made us stray? from your ways, and hardened our heart from your fear. Return for your servant's sake, the tribes of your inheritance. Um, you know, why have you caused these things to happen? Much like <clears throat> when we talked about Pharaoh hardening his heart, uh, God didn't act any differently towards uh Pharaoh than he did the nation of Israel. If if the people of Israel were disobedient to God, right? I mean, look at the Passover in the end. The Lord is saying, if you do not mark your house with the blood of the Passover lamb and then stay inside your homes uh, during the death angel's passing, you will die. This isn't just the Egyptians. This is Israel also. God, behaving the same for Moses as for Pharaoh, affected Pharaoh so that he hardened his heart. Here, when it's saying, you know, you, you made us stray from your ways and hardened our hearts from, from your fear. Think about that uh, picture that he's painting, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If we're going to see a repentant people, if we're going to see a spiritually healthy people, there has to be the fear of the Lord in place. They've strayed from the fear of the Lord. How? God has somehow caused them to stray from the fear of the Lord. In what way? In that he has said you can't do any of these things. They're off limits. And they've said, no, we really want them. And they've begun to participate them 
in them. So God sends his messengers to pronounce judgment upon them, and they are filled with anger and hatred, bitterness, and hardness. So, so God is, is not steering them away from respecting and fearing them like, oh, you're being such a good bunch of kids. You're just being such a wonderful group of people in a nation loving me and following. You know what I'd like to do? I'd like to just mess you up. Let me just steer you away from fearing me into some really bad situation. No, it's a matter of God is consistent and constant, and we're the ones that are constantly adrift. And in the end, it's our knowledge of God, their knowledge of God, and the fact that he's pronouncing judgment and, and speaking correction to them that causes them to go astray. They're steering off away from God's plan. This isn't God turning them away. And now the, the reverse of the statement is you need to restore us. We need you to bring us back. Now that I totally agree with. Now how in the world are we ever going to come to the place we need to come to? The thing, you guys, that has that I have seen over the years that causes people to repent and come to the Lord more than anything is crisis. God allows and brings and even causes crisis so that people will turn to him. That's, you know, when we're, when we're saying, do whatever it takes, Lord. You listen real closely. Somewhere you're going to hear the Lord saying, are you sure? Do whatever it takes. Is that really what you want? Those of us that have been through the pounding, which I think I know every one of our situations in the room, <laughs> we've been through the poundings, right? When we've been through them, what a glorious thing. To find ourselves in the right place. To find ourselves in the repentant place. To find ourselves in the presence of I will return for your servant's sake. The tribes of your inheritance, your holy people, have possessed it but a little while. Your, our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. Uh, well, I would take the opportunity to pause right there, okay? Yeah, okay, so uh, your adversaries, it's true, but they were Israel. Certainly the invading forces do that. But these are the people that set up sexual symbols, statues, inside the temple. Inside the temple. And they're worshiping perversion in the presence of the Lord. And they've literally got a mental justification of, well, but we're doing it inside the temple. My mother was trained as a nurse by, as she describes them, some pretty strict nuns. And these were nursing instructors, and they were at times harsh. And it wasn't a classical harshness you sometimes hear about. These women understood, we're training you for the medical community. My mother ends up working in an OR for years, assisting doctors doing surgery. you got to have your act together if you're going to be in there. These women were hard. And in particular, my mother always used to tell the story of a single occasion where one of the charge nurses, a head nurse, comes in, and <clears throat> they've got surgical equipment laid out, and there's literally, like, blood and some things on it. And that charge nurse loses her mind because not only was it not clean, but you've been numb enough to go ahead and set it out as though we're going to do surgery with this stuff. So as she starts to pick it up and chew people out, one of the women that was responsible for having laid that out said, oh, I saw that, but I knew it would be just fine because it had been sterilized. And that woman came unglued. When 
flinging stuff around, throwing stuff. And then, you know, the final statement as she went storming out the door with all of this stuff she'd gathered up was sterile filth. There is no such thing. <laughs> you can't set up sexually perverted idols in the temple and then justify them by the fact that they're in the temple. You know, here, your adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. Nobody else has trodden down the sanctuary at this point except for Israel. Judah, the people of this nation. God is slapping them right across the face. Who, who has defiled the sanctuary? The priests, the people, the nation. Who's defiled the sanctuary? My adversaries. Oh, wait a minute, you know. We're all of the same nation. We're all of the same team. No, you're not. God is saying, no, you're not. You are my adversaries. You've become my enemy by doing this. You've defiled it. We've become like those of old over whom you never ruled, those who were never called by your name. It's as though... Abraham didn't even happen. It's as though we have no history with you. We've come to the place where we are as defiled as the pagan nations is what he's saying. Okay, now flash to us, right? We have the exact same numbers, exact same numbers of adultery in the church. The exact same numbers of drunkenness and drug addiction in the church. We have a slightly higher abortion rate. How about that, you guys? One, two, some estimate 5% higher in the church. Why? Because we're adulterers. Yet we claim to be Christian and we're very often married. So we can't have this child from an adulterous relationship. So we're actually committing abortions slightly. And I'm saying we. Right? Daniel the prophet said we have sinned against you, O oh God. This is us, you guys. We've defiled the sanctuary as a people, as believers. And that's where the Lord is with this, you know, in that, that summary statement. They're not going to say this about themselves. This is the Lord saying it through the mouth of Isaiah as though the people were speaking. It's the only way you're going to get this level of honesty is when God speaks for you and me. Right? We always play it way down. I've described to you before, had a visiting friend here. Their little boy was out on the playground laying with another little boy. I hear some howling, some scuffle, crying. I go running. Here they both come inside. The guest is looking all angry, and he's like, I think 10 or 11. The boy from our church is literally hanging onto his face, and as he pulls his hands away, he's bleeding, fat lips. So parents aren't around. I start, what is going on? What happened here? I finally get the explanation. The visiting boy says, well, this kid from your church, man, is out here on the swing, and I really wanted to use the swing. I asked him, he said no, so had to punch him in the mouth a little bit. I had to punch him in the mouth a little bit. So you punched him in the mouth is what you're saying. Once? No. Twice? Yes. Punched him in the mouth a little bit. No, it isn't a little bit, right? Okay, right? We all know that. You punch, and I, you understand what you did was assault somebody, you understand it's a crime. You can't just, I can't tell a police officer that downtown. I really wanted that parking space, so had to punch a guy in the mouth a little bit, you know. Cop's going to go, oh, okay, I understand. Right? You don't get to do that. God will, will confess the honesty outright for us. We, we paint it in the best light we can, right? Punch somebody in the mouth, but just a little bit. <laughs> is that why he's fat-lipped and bleeding and just a little bit? We, we always make our junk look 
as sparkly as we can. And God steps right forward and says, no, you've defiled the sanctuary. You're like all the other pagan nations. It's as though I have no history with you. <laughs> what a scathing rebuke. What a scathing rebuke. You know, we do that, right? Oh, it's a Christian nation founded on Christianity. You would not hardly know it today. Not hardly know it, looking around. We're going to take God's honesty. And it's going to start with my own heart. And then it extends outward into my home, into your home, throughout our culture and the world. When we begin to view things the way God views things. When we start to have his level of honesty. When the fear of the Lord returns, his people begin to turn. And let's just think about that last statement again. Your, your holy people have possessed it but a little while our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. We've become like those of old over whom you never ruled. Those who were never called by your name. What, what an unfortunate summary of believers. I pray for our nation. I don't know about you. Constantly pray for our nation. It needs to come to the place. All the particulars like I started out talking about before we even got into Bible study. But the stuff that's going on in our nation. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And all these things will be added unto you. It has to be that we, especially as believers, return and turn our hearts to the Lord. And as we do, the Lord will heal our nation. We have that promise. If we do not, then we are destined to follow after the same tracks as this nation we're witnessing right here on these pages. We say that all the time about, oh, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. My goodness, do we really understand what it means to repeat this history? Do we really understand that, that there could literally be no more America? Literally. We could, we could be just destroyed by our behavior. We're such a young nation. Uh, the, the history of Israel... Having survived as long as they have, that's only because of the grace of God. Only because of the grace of God. Needs to be that we repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Amen? Well, we'll pick up with Isaiah chapter 64 next week. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father, I thank you again. For your word, for this time, this place to be together. Lord, I pray that you would minister to us even this evening. We'd be filled with the Holy Spirit as we just read. That we would have a heart and a love for one another. We would minister to one another in the time we have remaining. Bless our evening. Bless our time together. Watch over us and keep us till we're together again. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.